Hey, good afternoon, you. Hope you're well. It's me, the BBG. Richie Allen with you for Thursday. Uh, Thursday, my God, it's Tuesday. That sounded a bit like wishful thinking there. Getting ahead of myself, it's Tuesday, of course. It is the 19th of December, 2023. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. Thursday, eh? It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, I did mention this morning on the Papers podcast that I'm getting a bit flaky. That's okay. Hey, listen, Mike Fairclough will be on the program today. What a fascinating man Mike is. We came across him three years ago. Uh, He went on Good Morning Britain, he went on the national media to denounce the lockdown, the impacts it would have on children, mask wearing and all the rest of it. Until very recently, Mike was the headmaster of West Rise Junior School in East Sussex. He's also written several books on education. He's a really interesting guy. Mike Fairclough joins the programme and he will be with me in round about one half of an hour. Yeah, half an hour's time. Mike Fairclough, don't miss that. And as usual, if you'd like to involve yourself in the affairs of The Richie Allen Show, if you'd like to comment to opine, do so via richieallen.co.uk or use the app, download the app and send a message instantaneously to the studio. I want to ask you a question and we've never done a phone-in on this exclusively. I've I've tried to avoid doing phone-ins on one subject and one subject only. I like to make it a kind of an open mic, right? But maybe we should have done this because it's important. And it's about assisted dying and whether you think the facility should be available in the UK. Now, I'm aware that listeners are listening in various parts of Europe and in other parts of the world, and in some of those places, assisted dying is legal. So I'm well aware of that. Do you think the facility for people should be available here? How would it work? How would safeguarding work? How could you determine that the person is compus mentis? How could you determine for sure that the person is not being coerced into deciding to end his or her own life, right? Are you completely against it, right? Have you experienced living with a loved one who succumbed to a terminal illness? And if so, did, has that informed your your view or your perspective on assisted dying. We'll see how things pan out a bit later on. I might open the phone and take one or two calls on that particular subject. We'll see how it goes, right? Okay. I've um it's been a mad busy day here today and it's getting it'll be busier again later on. So we'll see how it goes. Anyway, Esther Esther Ransom is a very famous British television presenter. She presented a show which was hugely popular on Sunday evenings for many years called That's Life. Now, she's got lung cancer and it is grim. All right. Here she is on BBC Radio 4 discussing assisted dying and her decision to involve, to possibly involve the clinic, as they call it, in Zurich, known as Dignitas, Esther Ranson. I have joined Dignitas. I have, um, in my brain, thought, well, if the next scan says nothing's working, I might buzz off to Zurich. 
But, you know, it, it puts my family and friends in a difficult position because they would want to go with me. And that means that the police might prosecute them. So we've got to do something. At the moment, it's not really working, is it? You'll hear Nick Robinson, no BBC. Is it your view, Esther, that you might actually do it? Or is it just the comfort of knowing you could? Well, I think it's both, isn't it? When they, when you look at countries and states where they've brought in limited circumstances under which assisted dying is possible, um, they say an awful lot of people never use it because knowing that they could, as you rightly say, comforts people. And then the palliative care works and they drift away. Can I just- this is Amol Rajan. Can I just ask on that particular thing, though, Esther, how does your family feel? I mean, it's obviously something that all of us who've grappled with these issues um, yeah. keep very, very close to ourselves. But how do your family feel about your joining Dignitas and that being a, an option? My family say it's my decision and my choice. Um, I explain to them that actually I don't want their last memories of me to be painful because... If you watch someone you love having a bad death, that memory obliterates all the happy times. Mm. And I don't want that to happen. But is there such a thing as a bad death in this day and age? Right. Now, the counter-argument is provided here by Baroness Findlay. Baroness Findlay is a professor of palliative medicine, speaking also to BBC Radio 4. I would disagree with her because actually we have palliative care in this country, but what isn't working is access for everyone to the palliative care they need. We still have hospices only getting a third of their funding from the NHS. We're still relying on voluntary donations to make sure that people can live well for as long as they have. And Esther, in her interview, just showed you cannot predict how long people will live. And they need to know that they'll get the care that they need when they need it in a timely way that will deal with whatever problems get thrown up. And what about the religious perspective then? Or the Christian perspective? Here's a guy called Gavin Ashenden. He's a former Anglican bishop and he's speaking to GB News on this subject. The problem is it's absolutely fine for Esther Ranson and for uh, Diana Rigg and uh, and other wealthy, independent people to make these moral decisions for themselves. The difficulty is when we legislate it for the whole of society because uh, at that point the poor then find themselves a, a burden on the state with too few resources and the pressure to accept the early termination of their life will grow too great. That's that's amazing, isn't it? On on a national news channel, the guy says Gavin Ashenden that the poor could somehow come to feel in a in an era of limited resources that they are uh, a burden on the state and that might bring pressure that that itself might bring pressure on them to to terminate their lives. That's amazing. We might come back to that. It's the slippery slope argument, and I'm particularly when it comes to economics, um, that it almost always happens. But if they were to write into the legislation that it could only apply once someone has been given a a, a terminal illness that, that their life has got no more than six months, doesn't that change things, particularly if then two doctors certified that the patient was of sound mind mentally? 
Well, yes, of course, that's a good argument. But the trouble is that's not how things work in our culture. I mean, if you look, for example, at the abortion debate, where there were supposed to be very powerful safeguards written in, they've simply been eroded over time under pressure. And, and I've no doubt at all that uh, the, any safeguards we wrote in for euthanasia once we started the process, will also be eroded. And it simply means that as people get old, even if, this, even if the state does nothing, they'll look at themselves and think, I'm taking away resources from my children and grandchildren. I better pop off or I, I, the, the pressure, I think, will become enormous. And I think this is one of those things as a matter of social policy, where uh, issues of economics and social justice and, and our psychology all mean that it's too fragile to, to legislate in that kind of way. Yeah, well, you know, the broadcast media here today featured or spoke to a cross-section of, of, of the, well, it spoke to pretty much a representative from all political parties and to a man and woman, and I mean this, every one of them was in favour of it, was in favour of a draft bill at some stage, after a consultation, of course, and then a draft bill, and then later on a vote. So, in theory, in the very near future, assisted dying um, might very well become a reality here in the UK. What do you think of it? I think it's important. I think this particular issue is important. And I kind of go along with the former Anglican bishop in terms of his take on it being a, a very slippery slope. What do you think of that? Um, listen, Stuart Waiton has been in touch with me. Very interesting. He was on the programme yesterday. Stuart, he's a good guy. He's an author. He's an academic. He's a journalist. He lectures at Aberte University and he's the chairman of the Scottish Union for Education, which is kind of like a lobby group, right? It's advocating for uh, common sense in education. I'm not the man now to tell you what the Scottish Union for Education is doing. You should find them online and they'll tell you. But it's it argues for a common sense return to education approach to education. Let's educate. Let's not groom children. Again, not their term now, but let's not, you know, impose ideologies on children on on so many different things, whether it be gender identity, whether it be whether it be um climate change, whether it be anything. Don't do that. And we talked yesterday about how increasingly, in Scotland in particular, young children are being asked to express their feelings and to talk about depression and all manner of things like this in, in groups as part of, of lessons in the day-to-day -day attending school. And one of the things he pointed out, Stuart Wayton, and it's got a sub-stack, does the Scottish Union for Education, he said like that inevitably when you start to kind of impose upon kids this idea that they might be suffering from a mental health issue, even if they're not, and getting them to talk about it and to contemplate it all the time. This will inevitably lead to an increase in the numbers of children being medicated for for a mental health issue or or, or something like that. So, so he's just emailed me, Stuart. I'm on the fly here. I'm on the hop here. And he, he says, I thought I'd check this, he says, and of course, and it's the University of Aberdeen, a paper or an article on the University of Aberdeen's website this year, back in January, mental health prescriptions for children are up nearly 60%. And that article published January the 11th, 2023. 60% increase in a eight-year period 
from 2015 to 2023, a 60% jump in the numbers of children being handed a prescription or their parents being handed a prescription to, um, to fill, to get the pills to give to the children. I'm glad I saw that email now because um, I don't often check my, 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 my email when I'm on air. So yeah, thanks to Stuart Waiton for that. Scottish Union for Education at substack.com. Might find time to take one or two calls on assisted dying. Um, 10,000 children uh, are dead in Gaza, which is an underestimation, by the way. Isn't it shocking? Is there any other way of describing it? 10,000 kids, uh, 20,000 plus uh, people killed in Gaza by the Israeli Defence Force bombardment of the area. Aid agencies are screaming bloody murder about it over the plight of people in Gaza. There will be a UN Security Council vote on a new ceasefire resolution. And I don't have a producer or an editor, so you're going to have to bear with me because this could be happening now. I don't know. It might happen later on uh, this afternoon. We'll, we'll keep an eye on it as long as I'm on air anyway. James Elder of UNICEF has said, not even lip service has been paid to requirements to safeguard medical facilities, food and water. The Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, has said Israel is ready for another humanitarian pause in Gaza to secure the release of more hostages there, which will enable the delivery of more aid. I can't say much more on that and on the UN vote because I don't have any more information at the moment. The BBC reporting, let's have a quick look on its live page, (coughs) excuse me, the old voice is beginning to go on me, which happens a couple of times a year, so you will forgive me for that please. I'm telling you and then I'm asking you. Um, Nothing as of yet, Uh, Nadia Taufik is reporting from New York. Nobody wants another failed UN Security Council vote, she says. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, Mike Fairclough, until recently head teacher, will be on the programme shortly. Fascinating guy. Looking forward to chatting with him. If you've got something you'd like me to put to Mike, leave a message on the website. Do it via the app. There is an app for the programme now. I'm tired of saying it, but thank you. Thousands of you have downloaded uh, the app, either through Apple's App Store or through Google Play. If you have done, please leave a review for it and say it's the greatest thing since, I don't know, since shredded wheat or something. Right, please do that. Or just say whatever you want, I don't mind. Let's move on just for a moment. Um, What are we going to do now? Yeah, we talked about this yesterday. Rachel McLean, the Conservative Party MP for Redditch, who's the Deputy Chairperson for Women in the Conservative Party. Now, when she stands again, when she tries to hold on to her seat at the next election, one of her opponents will be Melissa Poulton. Melissa is a bloke who thinks he's a lady. And Melissa is standing for the Green Party. Right, and there's been a bit of controversy because um, somebody posted that Poulton was a man who wears a wig and calls himself a proud lesbian. And Rachel McLean retweeted this. And you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to retweet anything because you could be in trouble, cancel culture. So she is in a little bit of trouble because she has had a hate incident recorded against her. Yes, the police have recorded a hate incident against her, what they call a non-crime hate incident. Hate, hate, by retweeting that Poulton is a bloke in a wig who thinks he's a proud lesbian. That is hate. It's hate. Now, Lee Rowley is a Tory. 
He's also a housing minister. Here he is going to bat for Rachel McLean on Times Radio. Lee Rowley. Well, Rachel's a personal friend, and what Rachel was saying was that um, there is a biological sex, and it's absolutely the case, and it's appropriate to be able to talk about that. Mm. And I think I think the West Midlands police were wrong to record it as a non-crime hate incident on a personal level. We have to be able to have these conversations. You know, the idea Can that we have them these conversations... Is it possible to have well, them politely, though? Because a man Rachel, in a wig is not polite. Well, I, I, but it's true. I don't think Rachel wrote that. Uh, Rachel wrote she knew what a woman was. But fundamentally, this country needs to be able to have these conversations. These conversations don't just go away because people try to shush them. When I go back to my constituency, these are important conversations to have. We want to treat people with sensitivity and care, but we also want to be very clear that we're protecting children and that we can have conversations about things like biology, which are absolute, which is the reality, which is the objective truth. The reality. So you think it's okay for for Rachel McLean to share a post that said a man in a wig? There's nothing wrong with having this conversation. I think the point is, is that we have to have it politely. I think that is the point that's being made here. Why are they so concerned with kindness? Not just uh, the media, but the, the political class. Why are they so obsessed with telling people how they should frame an argument? Or the context, you know, or, or, or the conditions, you know, dictating to people the conditions within which you can have, the parameters within which you can have a discussion. They're obsessed with it. Again, to go back to Stuart Waiting, Stuart talked about this last night. He talked about it previously. You know, this idea that we, we all have to, to be kind to one another. But, you know, we've managed for thousands of years. We've managed to live, haven't we, people? We've managed to coexist with people even when some of them are not kind in how they frame their arguments. And we make a conscious decision, don't we, based on people's behaviour as to whether we want to continue to listen to them or engage with them. We don't need to be lectured, do we, by politicians and by journalists about how it's important for us to be kind. Interesting this, isn't it? This, this, this notion of being kind. And as Rachel has indicated, it is important that we have this conversation. We make sure that, we are, that we're having it in a way which works and which people, which people understand. Um, but fundamentally, we should not try to stop having this conversation. It's important we do it. I'm okay. going to choose my word. Yes. And why, why, why should anyone think about having to be kind to a bloke in a wig who claims he's a proud lesbian? Where's the kindness? And how do you tell the guy who says he's uh, a lesbian, how do you tell him that he's an idiot without saying that he's an idiot? Do you understand? How else would you frame that? Other than, you're not a lesbian, you're an idiot. And that's one of the worst wigs I've ever seen in my life. Ever. There's only one wig worse than Melissa Poulton's wig, and it is Michael Fabricant's wig. Now, Michael Fabricant will be known to people who pay attention to... Westminster and to the affairs of the House of Commons. He's a Conservative Party MP who's been knighted, so it's Sir Michael Fabricant, if you please, and he has the worst wig in the history of syrup of figs. He has the worst wig ever. And Melissa Poulton's is not far away. It's not far from that. And 19 minutes past the hour, it's the Richie Allen Show for Tuesday, get it right, it's the 19th of December 2023. Mike Fairclough will be on the programme and he'll be on the programme soon. You don't want to miss him. In the meantime, let's talk about something else as quick as we can because time 
is pressing. Let's stay with the guidelines. Have you been listening to this today? So the government, after five years, has finally published guidelines on schools. Sorry, guidelines for schools on how to deal with it if a pupil, if a child says, well, I want you to use these pronouns. And I am no longer a boy, I am a girl. So what are the guidelines? What are the guidance? Well, the guidance is simple, right? What does it do? What does it say? It basically says that schools must not allow a child aged 11 or older to change or wash in front of a child of the opposite sex. Okay? Teaching staff... Pupils and parents will be told they do not have to observe a child's chosen name and pronouns if they hold protected religious or other beliefs that conflict with the decision. Teachers must let parents know they have a general duty to allow um, pupils to socially transition but are urged to use caution and they must tell uh, in most circumstances, they must tell parents. It's been claimed, hasn't it, that in many cases, in, in recent years, when pupils are asking to be called by a female name or to have different pronouns used, um, we, 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 we've learned, we've heard over the years, that parents have been excluded from these conversations. Anyway, a current head teacher is a gentleman called Serge Kafai. Here he is on Talk Radio. He's happy with the new guidance. Have you seen in your long career this sort of well, phenomenon take off? Well, I'm not sure we call it phenomenon. We might look back in 10 years' time and consider it grooming. You know, uh, we've already had our Jimmy Savile moments where we've looked back and thinking, how on earth did we ever let that happen? Uh, that's why I welcome what's going on. Maybe you're right, Kevin, it hasn't gone far enough yet, but it's better than it was yesterday. And now you've got head teachers who may not be bullied by activist groups, you know, with other agendas. So, Alex, quite rightly, these ideas never came into the mind of children. Somebody's put them there. And my worry, and we haven't got much control over social media, that it's adults doing it with alternative agendas. And uh, again, Grooming, recruitment, I don't care what you call it, and I'm too old to care anymore, but someone's going to start protecting our kids. And if we can't do it in schools, we can't do it anywhere. But um, I hope it goes into law, but um, I'm so pleased. Step in the right direction. Step in the right direction. Lovely. Hi to David, who says, Esther Ranson once said, those who refuse the vaccine should not be treated for emergency care like heart attacks they should be allowed to die. There is a video of her saying this. It can be found on YouTube, says David. Thank you, David. Uh, hi to Pete, who uh, says, Richie, Pete Walker. Hi, Pete. He, he, he mentions a film which is on Netflix at the moment. I believe Julia Roberts is in it. Am I right in saying that? And Ethan Hawke. It's uh, produced by the Obamas and it's called Leave the World Behind. He says, it's a brilliant film, not... Uh, blaming the rest of the world for their problems, uh, well worth pulling apart as a fear film, but no mention of vaccines and scamdemics, says Pete. Thank you, Pete. Hi to Kev, who says there's £10 trillion unfunded pension liabilities in the UK. To put that into perspective, the entire housing stock is only worth seven to eight tri trillion pounds. This is why they want to get rid of the elderly and disabled, and that's in Kevin's opinion. 
Marcus says, I thought midazolam was going on anyway. Thank you, uh, Marcus. Mark says, uh, hi, Mark, and thank you for your guest recommendation. Dell is in Stoke. Hello, Dell. He says, Richie, regarding the collapse of another football player of a heart attack, there is a BBC podcast uh, called 72 Plus, and the episode of December 15th, which came out a few days before the latest player to collapse, they talked about players collapsing, and they said it could be linked to products being used by players called Snus. Just thought you should know it is worth a listen. Thank you, Dell. Hi to Andrea in Glasgow. Hi, Andrea. Really appreciate that. She's been downloading the app. Thank you for downloading it. Listen, if you're in the UK, sorry, if you're outside the UK and you are told that the app isn't available in your territory, do use a VPN and you will be able to download the app. Hi to Adam. Hello, Adam. Not a lesbian, but a pervert, says Adam. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate that. 24 minutes it is past the hour. Have I got one more story for you before we move on? Yeah, this one is good. You know the government wants to send asylum seekers off to Rwanda on planes. It's a nonsense policy. It is absolute nonsense, right? No flights will ever take off with asylum seekers who have landed in this country. It will never happen. If I'm wrong because I'm often wrong. When, when it does happen, I'll be the first one to put my hands up and say I was wrong. But I don't think it will. This is It's gaslighting, this, on a grand scale, right? Now, Rishi Sunak, the UK Prime Minister, was at the Liaison Committee today in Westminster. Now, the Liaison Committee is where the heads of all the other committees, the heads, the chairpersons, they get to grill the Prime Minister. Now, Dame Diana Johnson of Labour wanted to talk about the Rwanda flights with Rishi Sunak and, well, you might imagine it's just a little bit farcical. You've said that you want to see planes take off by the spring to Rwanda. That's one of the things you've said. Now, I understand that no airline is willing to actually contract with government to remove people to Rwanda. (laughs) So you want to take off. You want flights to take people to Rwanda. Sounds like you don't have any airlines willing to do it, though, Prime Minister. Because of reputational damage. Is that correct? There isn't an airline that you've got lined up to remove people. (laughs) I think we, we are, in terms of timing, I'd say, I want to get flights off as soon as practically possible. You need some planes to do that. Uh, we do. The plane, the plane. You need planes, Prime Minister. But we also need to be able to pass the legislation through Parliament first. Right, but on the plane point, which I'm asking you specifically about, do you have an airline I, I'm, I'm, ready I'm to go? I'm confident we will have the ability to send people to Rwanda. But, but you there don't are have many an steps. Uh, again, I, you wouldn't expect me to comment on commercial conversations uh, well, that, that are necessarily well, private. But I'm highly confident okay. that we can operationalise the bill in all its aspects. Okay. Uh, can that's I not ask- just about flights. There's many different steps okay. that you need. But the legislation needs to get through Parliament right. first. Okay. So we're not. And as quickly we're, as it passes, then we will work we're not to clear operationalize this, the bill. Any airlines? Okay. No airlines. Reputational damage might mean <laughs> that airlines might not want to do it. This is the Richie Allen Show, by the way, sponsored this week by the excellent NutraHealth365.com. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2. 
as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. Music from Bruce Hornsby and the range is exactly 5.30. The Richie Allen Show live on richieallen.co.uk. Fab Radio 2 in Manchester. Multiple platforms are on the TuneIn app as well. Uh, download the Richie Allen Show app from the App Store or from Google Play. I'm really excited to meet my guest this hour. You know that we love Sally Beck at The Conservative Woman. We love Sally. Great writer. Um, she's written about my guest. Um, I came across him on national television a couple of years ago. I thought he was really courageous. At that time, uh, maybe even to this day, he was the only head teacher who um, had the courage to talk out, to speak out against lockdown and the impact this would have on children, on mask wearing. And later on, the decision to give vaccines to children, um, you know, children, a cohort, I suppose, that was completely... Almost, almost immune to the effects of COVID nineteen. Um, hugely successful head teacher, um, beloved. Um, one time his school won the primary school of the year award. That's a Times educational supplement. Um, largely down, it must be said, to him uh, and to his staff. He recently resigned from his position. And I was thinking about that and I decided I'd ask him to come on and talk about it, the fallout from that, how he feels now, and also about some of his books because he's written several um, hugely popular books on education. Let's welcome to the programme Mike Fairclough. Mike, how are you? Welcome. I'm good, thanks, Richie. How are you? I'm good, mate. Thanks for coming on. It sounds like you're having a crazy busy day, so uh, so thanks for spending some time uh, with us. Tell me, um, it's been a few months since you resigned um, from the school, how do you feel about that now? Um, with with the dust settling um, a little bit. Yeah, so I'll give you the background uh, very briefly. So, um, uh, as you were saying in your introduction, I actually continue to be the only UK head teacher or school principal out of more than twenty thousand to publicly question um, lockdowns masking children and the COVID vaccine rollout to kids, which I still find um, really shocking. I thought that there would be at least one other person who would um, who would speak out, but they didn't. And by the way, it wasn't that others didn't agree with my stance. I had many colleagues um, who are head teachers and school principals privately tell me that they agreed with my stance, but they were too scared to speak out, which is um, an ongoing issue, I think, um, not just within education, but in lots of different sectors. But basically what happened is um, back in 2021, um, I was reported by an anonymous whistleblower for my objection to uh, lockdowns and to the COVID vaccine rollout to children. I was, uh, my employer, East Sussex County Council, commissioned an investigation into me. Um, I was cleared of any wrongdoing and I carried on. And then I was subjected to uh, another uh, anonymous whistleblowing complaint in the same year. 
uh, again independently investigated and again cleared uh, on the matter of uh, my free speech regarding the COVID vaccines to children, which had been my main thing that I've been speaking out about. And then the final time was uh, in December uh, of last year, and I was reported under um, the government's um, flagship anti-terrorism uh, uh, policy, PREVENT, and uh, I was also reported to the uh, Department for Education's Counter Extremism Division. So I was framed as a, uh, a dangerous extremist for um, the for expressing my views, which I'd done always in a really moderate manner and aligning myself with really reputable people such as Molly Kingsley, um, Alison Pierce, Telegraph, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, because I was always thinking, you know, I need to communicate to people who've got a different view to my own and who might be in the balance uh, regarding the vaccine rollout to kids. And, and by the way, I did all of this in my own time in the evenings, weekends, etc. So on the third occasion, um, I um, uh, that hit me quite bad because, um, you know, being like accused of terrorism, essentially, uh, simply for expressing a lawful opinion was was like a real kind of blow to me. Again, I was investigated and I was cleared across the board. Um, and then I said to my employer, look, can you uh, please guarantee that I will not be investigated for exactly the same matter time and time again, because this is kind of excruciating. It feels like the complaints process is being used as a way to kind of punish me for um, expressing my lawful opinions. And they were unable to, um, to, to make that commitment. So I constructively dismissed myself from my position in September of this year, and I'm now taking my employer to court there's a court case in November 2024 five days have been set aside I'm being supported by the free speech union Toby Young's uh, union with um, chief legal counsel Bryn Harris and the UK's uh, um, leading civil liberties barrister Paul Diamond um, so that's where we've where, that's where we're at now. this is a really important case isn't it I mean in terms of precedent in terms of people like you in the future what what you've described to us there I've been reading about I'm so glad you described it I genuinely can't imagine how stressful that must have been for you Mike I don't know how you dealt with that because you know to be referred to as some sort of terrorist as a danger to children and you're obviously somebody who loves children you're somebody who obviously loved your job I've listened to other interviews I saw you on national television Um, you you were you were a bit of a curiosity before COVID because of your approach to education which I love by the way you know some of the initiatives some of the things that you were involved in how did you get through that Mike was it somebody at home was it a partner because it would have destroyed yeah. lesser people yeah my wife's been amazing um she has been um i mean she she's agreed with my stance and um stood by me throughout the the the, the whole process it is an interesting um experience though this whole um thing of uh you know for, for, if you forget about me for for a moment and just think about any controversial in inverted commas or politically sensitive topic and it could be something about um you know gender ideology or climate or vaccines or you know like anti-semitism or whatever whatever it might be there are certain kind of taboo subjects that people um in society are 
um, will remain silent about and will speak about in hushed tones to one another in private, but don't actually speak out uh, about um, publicly. And and within the education sector, I think this is um, a very dangerous place to be because um, all head teachers, in fact, all uh, uh, education personnel have a legal as well as moral duty to safeguard children against harm. And we go on annual safeguarding training, which um, tells us that if we see something that's going on, even if it's within the organisation as a whole and everyone else seems to think it's OK, if we don't feel it's um, right for children and that children's um, uh, well-being is at risk, then we have a legal obligation to speak out about it. And what we're finding is that um, there are loads of teachers and head teachers who, um, whether it was the, you know, the COVID vaccine rollout to kids, which, by the way, remember, Sajid Javid said that children could be vaccinated um, against their parents' wishes within their own school setting. And again, at that point, I thought, oh, there's going to be some other people, some other heads and uh, school principals who will say this is like totally bang out of order. And they didn't. They said it to me privately, but not publicly. Um, but even this whole kind of stuff with the with the gender things, I mean, it's like, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff about you know men can give birth and you know all that yeah. kind of thing which loads of teachers think is like ridiculous but but people don't want to say things in case somebody calls them names like a transphobe or like within with the vaccine thing it was like anti-vaxxer and of course once you can if you stand up to the people who call you names then they elevate it so you you kind of immediately then become like far right or you know like just kind of pile on a, a whole load of kind of ridiculous stuff which actually they did with me as well um uh, i was uh kind of even though I'm 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 married to a dark-skinned, full-blooded Punjabi Indian woman, <laughs> um, there was this there was it was implied that somehow because of my stance regarding the vaccines that I must be um, kind of like a sort of white supremacist or something, which again is just like is it's kind of nonsensical. But this is how cancel culture works. It 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 kind of corners people into a position where um, you know they lose their jobs, their reputations get damaged uh their finances are affected and then people look at what's going on with those individuals in society and they think right it's probably better that i don't speak out too but what i i feel is really important is that we all each have to say how we feel about things in a lawful and moderate manner um otherwise eventually the very things that we're concerned about which are you know all of these kind of crazy kind of mad sort of taboo subjects will eventually come to our door and it might be that that might be the point when it's too late to do anything about it mike fairclough is our guest mike is a um, much loved head teacher um, national acclaim for his school um, came to national attention I suppose during uh, 2021 when he spoke out ab about the the lockdown the, the the harm it would cause children the 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 mask wearing and then questioning whether children should be given the vaccines Mike has spoken about constructively dismissing himself because of one investigation after another him being cleared every time but then being reinvestigated for the same thing anonymous whistleblowers claiming that he was an extremist even being referred to prevent the government's counter-terrorism uh, unit horrendous stuff really uh, Mike credits his wife with being a, a rock for him during that period um, this is going to be tested in 
the courts what happened to Mike and he talked about the Free Speech Union so on the podcast notes this is live radio I will of course put links to all of this Mike's Substack account of course as well you can find him on Substack Mike it's great to have you on for, for, um, for, for the rest of this hour if you've got till the top of the air to spend with us because there's a few more things I'd like to get into um, why, yeah. did you, why did you know in 2020? Why did you know? What made you different? Is that when they said that people need to stay at home, schools need to be shut, what was it about you that you knew something was very wrong with that? Well, this is the thing. I didn't, uh, to begin with. So um, when um, Boris Johnson said, many of us will lose loved ones, I remember uh, I was driving back from um, work at the time and... I thought, wow, this is like really full power. And I'd been watching the um, reports coming out of China and Italy and so on. We've lost Mike momentarily. He's dropped out there. Are you still there, Mike? It seems to be reconnecting. I don't know if Mike is in an area of low coverage. Could be me too. Are you back with us, Mike? Yeah, I'm here, I'm here. Brilliant. No, yeah, we lost you for 15 seconds, my friend. You were just beginning to talk about the images and the news coming out of China. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so basically I um, I thought that at this point we weren't told that um, the virus uh, really only affected um, people with comorbidities and the elderly and that kind of stuff and that most people were at almost zero risk from um, COVID. So I, the first thing that I did was I went back to my school and I sent a message to my parents saying, look, until we know what's going on, uh, feel free to keep your children at home if you wish to. Now, this was a week before the official closure of schools. Some parents kept their kids at home. It was interesting that the, my my biggest um, uh, kind of crit, uh, people who were critical of my decision were the people who were later critical of me being um, outspoken about lockdowns and masking kids and the COVID vaccines for children. And the reason for that was that um, no one in authority had said, oh, I think you should keep children at home. So those people will only do things when they're told to by authority. So anyway, a week later, um, there were the proper school closures. All schools were partially open. So I had 150 out of my 365 kids in the school, um, about 30 out of my 60 members of staff. So there are about 200 people in the school building every single day throughout the first lockdown. And it was within that first sort of three or four weeks that the penny dropped for me because I could see that um, there weren't people dropping down dead like there were in China and the bodies piling up that they claimed was happening in Italy. Um, I, I knew um, parents who were working in the NHS who were telling me that the hospitals were not over overflowing with um, people with COVID. And that's when I was like, all oh, right, OK, so it's not as we've been told. And so but what the point I'm making is that my initial reaction was, oh, wow, there's, you know, that we're in really big trouble. And in fact, I was the first school in England to officially close. But then it was as soon as I started saying, OK, well, now that we know it's not going to affect kids and that the majority of adults are not at risk from COVID, I think we should open up society. That's when I started to uh, get attacked for my views. Yeah, you did, yeah. You just said something very interesting there. So parents of children who worked in the NHS, they were saying 
the hospitals are not as overflowing with COVID patients. Now, I'd like to ask you, I'm not setting you up here. You can say whatever you want. I live opposite Salford Royal Hospital. It's one of the biggest hospitals in the country, right? Um, I know three people working there. And I've been a journalist since 1998. I don't tell lies. I don't invent things. Now, I couldn't get any of them to come on the air. I couldn't get them to come on the air. But they said to me, um, no, Richie, we're not overwhelmed. Um, We're not under any great pressure. It's your usual winter respiratory illnesses type of thing. We're not hammered. So I'm asking you to speculate, Mike. If that was the case, if your NHS parents were telling you the truth and my contacts were telling me the truth, why then were the why was the media going to air every hour on the air and politicians saying <coughs> saying that the service was on the verge of collapse why do we right, think so so we now know that there was a um so so w- with the lockdown files that the telegraph um revealed and also with ironically with uh, Matt Hancock's um book the pandemic uh, diaries which um was co-authored by Isabel Okershot um we know that um the uh, pandemic uh, had uh, underpinning it a very very sophisticated um psychological operation so they used um the nudge unit to influence people's um, behavior and to ramp up fear um, and people who are susceptible to that kind of um, psychological manipulation then obviously believed it. Um, we also discovered later um, that the uh, counter disinformation unit and the rapid response unit were also redirected away from the traditional kind of extremists and terrorists like ISIS and all the rest of it and onto the domestic population and in fact a freedom of information request which I submitted to the Department for Culture, Media and Sport revealed that I was on that list for um, uh, the the comments that I'd made on uh, Twitter which I was later permanently banned from. So there was a very very sophisticated um, uh, uh, censorship industrial complex which was um, which was already in place but which grew over the pandemic and we also know from the Telegraph that the um, British intelligence agencies such as MI5 and MI6 were also liaising with the counter disinformation unit on all of this stuff so yeah. what we're seeing is that, that there was a, a a massive amount of um, behind the scenes manipulation of public opinion, which then made people then believe whatever it was they were told. And, you know, I think there are two really good models or kind of um, theories which, you, you know, could be applied to what happened over the last three years, which kind of explain things quite well. One of them is the famous Milgram experiment where, um, you know, if somebody in authority is telling people to do something, even if they're not really from in authority and what they're saying is untrue, the more that you know 75 percent of people will just follow the the orders so that's one and then the second one of course is the uh mass formation psychosis so if everyone else is doing something then it must be okay and i think those two kind of models explain uh kind of clearly what happened so the people within the nhs who could see yeah okay so it's not and we know this is the it, it 
in the end, like the average age of death was 82 with four comorbidities. <laughs> um, uh, so it was like that, that was that was the average age of death for, from uh, from COVID. Uh, and that's even taking into account, you know, the flawed PCR test and all of those sorts of things. Um, so we know that the, the hospitals weren't overflowing with um, uh, healthy people, as as was being claimed um, by the media. But as I said, there was a very, very, very. Mike has just dropped out again. Let's see, can we get him back? We're on WhatsApp today. Are you there, Mike? Yes. Well, you, you just dropped out for 15 seconds again. It's GCHQ, Mike. I'm joking, by the way. I don't know that it's GCHQ. <laughs> but somebody's, it's not impossible. It's not impossible, you know. <laughs> Come here and I tell you, at any stage, did you look across, of an evening in bed, did you look across at your lovely wife and say, when did you drug me and move us to North Korea without me having any indication that we were living in North Korea? Because that's what you've described, yeah. Mike. Essentially, yeah. that's what we um, are. That is exactly how it, well, of course, the, the, the model for lockdowns came from the CCP, from Chinese Communist Party in China. So that, that much um, is, uh, you know, widely accepted and known. And a lot of the draconian surveillance and, um, uh, you know, monitoring, spying on, on its citizens, all of that kind of thing is absolutely out of the Communist Party playbook whether that be North Korea or China and um, I think you know that's that's been the case um, for for quite some time pre-pandemic but it's never been so obvious than it is now and it's not even like conspiracy theory territory it's like it's well documented and it's also discussed in parliament so David Davis for example the MP was spied on by the county disinformation unit um, journalists such as uh, Julie, uh, Julia Hartley Brewer um, and others were and Molly Kingsley of course were all uh, uh, monitored so yeah, it it, it has felt um, like we've been living in one of those really draconian totalitarian um, states, and and in, in a way, what they've done is they've just kind of revealed themselves to be who they truly are. You're listening to Mike Fairclough, the only head teacher in the country, to criticise lockdown, to criticise the rollout of vaccines to children. Um, the only head teacher who publicly really, you know, that we know of, that did his job safeguarding the, the children under his care. Mike has written several books. I promise I'll put links on the podcast notes uh, to where you can read these books. We've not got much time left with Mike. Mike, I'd like to ask you, last evening, Stuart Waiton, the chairperson of the Scottish Union for Education, came on the programme. I don't know if you've come across Stuart. He's... Um, he lectures at Aberte University in Dundee. He's a criminologist, writes for the papers too. He's a really good guy, Stuart. And he talked about something he's seeing in Scotland, much more so in Scotland than in England, but it's happening in England. And I'm going to butcher this now because I'm terrible at, at um, paraphrasing. But Stuart believes, and he's written about this on his Substack, and the Scottish Union for Education is very passionate about this, that education itself is taking a back step to the ideological grooming of children in schools. Um, you know, children being asked to think about issues like, you know, being allies for LGBT um, classmates and friends. Um, they're spending a lot of time talking about mental health 
in schools in Scotland, which really concerns Stuart. And he's written very... Mm. Is, does that ring any bells for you? I mean, how, yeah. has it changed so drastically the job of the educator? Because I don't have a kid in school, but if I did, first of all, I'd want you to be the head teacher, and I'm not kissing your arse. I would mm. do. But, but <laughs> I'd like to think, well, they're going in there, they're going to come out with a bloody good standard of reading and writing English, maybe a bit of French, mm. maybe, and they'll be very good in terms of um, numeracy. Lovely. But they won't be being told about social justice issues in there and about racism and white privilege. Does that ring bells what Stuart Waiton is saying? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. So so um, there's several factors to this. One is, um, so I qualified um, to be a teacher in 1995. And at that time, there was a an intellectual requirement which was interrogated at interview. And um, you could um, summarize that as um, uh, assessing someone's critical thinking um, skills. Um, oh, we would, during the, the, the time that we'd be training, we had to study Vygotsky and Piaget and a lot of the other educational thinkers. And we had to have a passion and an interest in education, uh, philosophy and theory. These days, there is not the same requirement to enter the profession. And it is not, there's not the same same rigor regarding um, uh, critical thinking at uh, in in the training process, and it's interesting because the last um, complaint against me regarding the COVID vaccines for children also included a complaint that I believed that we should be teaching children critical thinking skills, and it was really interesting because I then started to think, right, okay, so what are these really big changes over the last three decades since I uh, qualified? And I realised that a lot of the teachers within the profession today are as much part of the TikTok generation as the students they teach. And of course, TikTok is a Chinese Communist Party platform, which in our country and in the West generally will include lots of things about uh, gender ideology, self-harming, etc. Things which are are banned in China, in mainland China. So, so it feels to me that there is a kind of cultural erosion that's going on, dressed up um, in the guise of inclusion and tolerance, because, you know, there's nothing wrong with people individually identifying with in whatever way they wish to. In fact, that's anyone who's kind of um, critical of, uh, and you know, how an adult wants to live their life in that respect is, you know, is bigoted and transphobic and all the rest of it. But the key bit is you don't need to say to children, oh, you're possibly in the wrong body and, you know, you, you don't have to tell your mum and dad whether you're a boy or a girl and all of this kind of stuff. And But all of that kind of that um, thing seems to come from uh, the TikTok social media platform, which is a CCP uh, controlled platform. So my kind of theory, and this is just a theory, is that there is a kind, there's a sort of um, a, a steady erosion of our values via um, adversaries. And, uh, you know, my kind of key kind of group to point the finger at is the CCP. Mike, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Just before you do go, I've got one final question for you. Um, judging by what's going on and the, the case you're taking with the support of the Free Speech Union, um, it might be difficult for you to return to education, at least in the short term. Uh, am I wrong to, to surmise that? Is it something you would want to do again? Because obviously you were born to it. 
Yeah, I would love to. So um, at the moment, uh, although I've been cleared of any wrongdoing regarding my right to free speech, etc., every single time I've been investigated um, and, um, you know, I seem to be on the winning team with regards to this, um, the 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 uh, the court case in, in November 2024, you know, bearing in mind I've had the, the backing of the Telegraph and Alison Pearson and Liam Halligan and, you know, some major uh kind of journalists in the mainstream have come you know sort of back to me with with um with with what i'm doing nonetheless i'm still it feels like blacklisted from the education sector and also uh, i should add blacklisted from the publishing world as well because for as long as i'm framed as this like in inverted commas anti-vaxxer or like anti-government then the kind of mainstream publishers don't really want to touch my work and uh schools are reluctant to take me on but that's why it's important that i you know i you know win this case um f with regards to my own needs but far more importantly it's about free speech in the workplace generally because it could be just as just as much uh, the case that it could be somebody with the complete opposite view to mine but which they're expressing in a lawful and moderate manner and have a right to express and that should be protected and should be protected in law and should be uh, something which everyone can you know enjoy within our liberal democracy uh, because as you said previously it's like you know it has felt like like we've kind of been living in this kind of mission creep towards a sort of totalitarian North Korea style uh, society and culture, which which absolutely isn't good for uh, our nation. Mike, good luck with everything. And thanks for coming on today. I really enjoyed listening to you. I'll post links. Uh, Mike is on Twitter, by the way. If you look for Mike Fairclough, you'll find Mike very quickly. But I'll post links to where you can buy his books. It'd be nice sometime in the new year, if you get some time, that um, not so much to discuss the case, but we do obviously wish you great success with it, but that we talk about education in general. And some of the novel ideas, I don't say novel disrespectfully, but some of the interesting ideas you've had over the years about how to educate children. We have a young audience with children because when the emails come through and the messages through the app it's often people talking about their children so if we yeah. could find some time in the new year mike i'd love to have you back in the uh, meantime yeah 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 good luck pal merry christmas and good luck with everything you're a star thank you same to you thank you richie take care bye 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 for now mike fairclough great great guy mike the sort of head teacher you'd want your children to be um, working with, wouldn't you, um, at their school. We'll follow that case, of course, Mike's case, with the Free Speech Union closely, and when there are developments, we'll bring them to you here at the Richie Allen Show. It's coming up now for, uh, well, it's about 30 seconds away from the top of the hour. It is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. I've messed up times again. I said this earlier on. I've had a couple of emails. I mentioned 6.30 or something earlier. Um, I'm flaky. I'm flaky now. I'm flaky. I'm flaking out. That's what it is. I'm flaking out. And listen, Sasha got in touch and um, I've invited her to come on and she's agreed. And it's about Dignitas. It's not about Dignitas, but it's about assisted dying in the UK. You see, when I was a younger man, full of liberalism, you know, me, the trade unionist when I was younger, you know, very, I don't think I was woke, but I was very much a libertarian and, you know, small government, small, small government and all of that. Maybe I still am. But I would have been in favour of, of, of my country, that is Ireland, legalising, within, within certain parameters anyway, with, with, with very close scrutiny, I would have been in favour of a law that allowed somebody 
who'd gone through certain procedures, right? There had to be protocols. But I was in favour of a law that if somebody wanted to die because they had a terminal illness and they wanted to choose the time of their own dying, I would have been very much in favour of that. But I was young. And you see everything in simple absolutes when you're a younger man or woman, don't you? Everything is black and white. Yeah, yeah, well, why should the state stop you? Yeah, it's your life and if you want to take your life. But you don't know very much when you're 20, 21. I know less now, maybe, than I did back then. But I've learned a few things. You know, and there are certain groups of people, it might suit people, if people decided that they were a burden on their family, they were a burden in their neighbourhood and that maybe it was time and that maybe they needed to create a space maybe for, I don't know, for younger, able-bodied people, right? So I would not be in favour of such a law being introduced in this country at all. We'll talk to Sasha in a moment and if you want to get involved in this between now and the end of the programme, you can give me a call. There are contact details for the programme. Here they are. No, that's not it. Oh, Jesus. I told you I was flaking out. Because I'm flaking out. It's your call. Skype. Chat with Richie. Or call 0161 818 2018. If you're calling from overseas, it's plus 44161 818 2018. Talk to Richie now. Yeah, there's a WhatsApp number for the program as well. WhatsApp. And that is 075 I'll read it again. This time I'll read it slowly. WhatsApp number 075-659-42270. Couldn't be simpler. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> A robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth 365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2 as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Yeah, thank you very much for your messages, by the way. A hi to Teddy who says, Richie, if only we could get organised, we could beat these fascists in a heartbeat. Those who stood in our way and destroyed our freedoms should not be forgotten. Their time will come and they will be judged, says Teddy. Hi to Chris who says, I wish the head teachers in my children's schools had half the backbone and moral compass as Mike Fairclough. What a top guy, says Chris there. Uh, Andy says, big love uh, to Mike. Keep your head up. Don't let the bastards grind you down. You're a hero, he says. Truth is right. Thank you so much for that. Lovely. Loads of comments coming in. Let me just go to the website now and read you a few more. By the way, John Waters will be on the programme on Thursday. You don't want to miss it because it's going to be fun. It's going to be funny. It's going to be interesting. Uh, we said we'd get John back on before Christmas. He'll be with me for an extended conversation on Thursday. And that will wrap up uh, the Richie Allen Show's 2023 adventures. Yes, that will be the final Richie Allen Show of 2023. Only 2023. 
All righty. Uh, so, John, yeah, okay. Patrick says, yes, Mike Fairclough, it was a sigh up, he says, and Richie, Richie even partly fell for it, says Patrick. Uh, I don't know what I fell for, Patrick, but thank you uh, very much. Uh, Wayne says, assisted suicide is a dream come true for the depopulation agenda, which is what it was called before the new speak rebranding. In Canada, people are being helped to commit suicide because they are depressed. Yes. Not just in Canada. We learned, did we not? Was it Belgium? Was it the Netherlands? At least one person has been passed uh, to, has been given the go-ahead to end their own lives, not because of any physical ailment or because they are near death, but because they, because they're in a mental health crisis. It's kind of amazing to me to even say this out loud. Elizabeth says, The Netherlands was the first uh, to make euthanasia legal more than 20 years ago. I've observed a slippery slope since then. It is now allowed for children from age 12, parent must approve though, uh, from age 16 to 18, parental approval is not needed but there are some constraints. Now certain politicians are discussing, a, for talking about a completed life pill a completed life pill that anyone can request to terminate their own life if they feel they no longer want to live. There's also some discussion that those over 70 should not be given expensive health care such as hip replacements or heart valve procedures, etc. Is that right? Is that right, Elizabeth? That they're talking openly about cut-off points for things like hip replacements, that you've become too old, that's amazing to me, if that is true. Amazing. Okay, it is six and a half minutes past the year. We'll get Sasha on for a chat. Um, she's had a personal experience of this. And while we do that, let's um, have music from ACDC. Just, just random ACDC on the Richie Allen Show. Why not? I'll play anything. I don't mind. So, I've given you the contact details. If you'd like to get involved in this discussion, there's also a WhatsApp number. Assisted dying. Is there ever a case to be made for it? Or not? Back with more in three minutes. Right, music from ACDC. You shook me all night long. Just before we say hello to Sasha, Lewis has uh, sent a message through the app. Use the app. He says, Richie, my mother died of lung cancer over 30 years ago. Uh, she only lasted 12 weeks from start to finish. And in the final weeks, she was on a mechanical morphine pump. I believe this was assisted dying in another form. Lewis, thank you, because I was going to mention this earlier on. When we talk about palliative care, do we really mean easing people out with a cocktail of drugs? You know, I've, I, I, I remember growing up in, in Waterford as a young lad, and I had a fairly fairly large extended family and you would hear about you know a grandfather or an aunt passing away from cancer and they would say that in the end the doctor just gives them you know the, the doctor eases them out so maybe there's something to that uh, very quickly Adrian witnessed his mum's palliative care supposed good death just a few months ago and it's haunting me now my heart is broken today. I'm sorry to hear that, Adrian. I would have said, if you want to chat, um, reach out to me and we'll have a chat, but maybe it's a bit raw for you. Um, yeah, because I mentioned again, didn't I? I mentioned at the top of the programme that advances in palliative care should mean that nobody 
with a terminal illness goes out in serious pain. And that's the argument often made by people against euthanasia. So the, 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 the professor of palliative medicine we heard from earlier on during the programme, what's her name again, Baroness Findlay, she said, really, you don't really need to be um, you know, assisting somebody to die. The advances in palliative care. She said, actually, that the problem in this country is, is that not everybody has access to the palliative care. Uh, hi to Billy, who says, um, ending your life with a terminal illness should be made easier, says Billy. My sister died from cancer in a horrible, painful way. I've no idea if she would have been interested in Dignitas, but it should be available for people suffering like that. Thanks, Billy, for sharing that. And let's welcome Sasha to the programme. How are you doing, Sasha? Hi, Richie. How are you? I'm really well. And thanks for reaching out, by the way. And thanks for your lovely message recently and your, your, your lovely present. I really appreciated that. We'll be talking soon about other matters, you and me, but today we'll talk about this. Yes. Um, Dignitas and your dad, tell us. So my dad had uh, a motor neuron disease, and so he was diagnosed in 2017. And, and once we'd all looked at what it what it entails and what it leads to, um, he was very worried that um, he was going to, you know, it's just a it's a degenerative disease, uh, illness, which there's no cure for it. And you're just going to you're only going to get worse and worse and worse and then you're going to die. So he obviously was a very proud and, you know, man, and he didn't want to be a burden on his family and he didn't want us to see him suffer. Um, so he decided that he wanted to join Dignitas so that he could go out in a in a in a more in a, in a in a nicer way. He thought. Um, now I did all of this for him because everyone else in my family would have been against it at the time because I was a bit like what you said um, earlier, which is you know this belief that, and actually I still believe I'm still quite torn about this. Um, this idea that everybody has the um, should have the ultimate say on what happens to them themselves. Um, so. You know, and I feel like if if somebody wants to do something, but it, like him, he didn't have, he couldn't use his arms, he couldn't use, he had no capacity to kind of administer it to himself. And yet, if that was his choice, I feel really strongly that he should be allowed to kind of do what he wanted to do. Um, how, yeah, so, but the problem was the reason he didn't do it in the end, which is, I don't know whether it's, well, what it is, but he didn't do it in the end because to go to Dignitas, you have to be, um, able to administer the dose, the, the dose, the lethal dose to yourself. So you have to be physically fit enough to be able to press that button to administer. And he wasn't. And for him to be able to do that, he would have had to go far too soon. He would have had to go at least a year or maybe even two years before he died, um, ultimately. So I'm really glad that we got that extra time with him in the end. Um, yeah, so so that's that's a, that's a, it's a tricky subject. But then this idea, you know, what you were saying earlier as well about palliative care, it's just not good enough, and people are not, um, you know, and and the, some of these part, I don't know enough about it, and I'm not a specialist, but some of these pathways and so on, where you hear about people being, you know, dying essentially of starvation or thirst. I mean, that's just barbaric. So you could see why somebody might choose to kind of do it in dignity, and and the name dignitas, it kind of gives you all of that. Um, illusion of dignity um around it but is then it, again uh you know this yeah i mean it's, it's a very conflicted and difficult thing because this terminology that we have already of people being a burden on the state is completely appalling you know this idea that somebody when they get old and and, and they can't look after themselves they're a burden that's that's a shocking idea and surely um in this day and age we've got the 
you know, we're advanced enough to be able to, for people not to be burdens and for them to actually, you know, be comfortable in their, especially when they're old and they've given so much already in their lives to, to the state. So, and I just wanted to add one more thing, which is that my auntie recently last year, she went into hospital, she had a hip operation, she fell over and broke a bone and she had a hip operation. And when I went to visit her, I noticed on her, on her card above her bed that there was a DNR and it said DNR, do not resuscitate. Somebody having said, a hip, hang on, somebody having a hip operation. Yeah, so my auntie, so she she fell over, she, she okay, she's 78 years old, she fell over, she broke her hip, um, and she went into hospital, and when I went there to visit her, she, so they could fix her hip, and when I went in to visit her, I noticed that there was, it said, do not resuscitate above her bed, and I said, Susie, they've put do not resuscitate, because I'm very alert to this stuff, because I listen to you all the time, and I'm, you know, this you know i just think it's appalling i yeah. said Susie, they, they've said do not resuscitate what is that and she said no 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 because obviously she was depressed she'd just broken her hip she's old she's feeling bad whatever and she said no 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 i i agreed to that they came and asked me and i agreed because um you know i don't want to be a burden i don't want to use resources that somebody younger or better than me could use and i mean to me that's absolutely tragic where they're getting older people who have actually contributed a hell of a lot in their lifetime, 78 years of contributing to, to the world that we live in, um, to then feel like she's nothing just because she, you know, fell over and hurt herself. You know what um, I'd love to so know, Sasha? You know what I'd love to know? Is appalling. Yeah. I, what, what I'd love to know is when did the concept, when, when, when did this first begin happening? Yeah. When, 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 when yeah. somebody in a hospital would pop around to somebody's bed and say, hey, listen, yeah. if something happens to you, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to work to keep you alive or do you want us to, um, to not resuscitate? I'd love to know when this was introduced because to me, it's abominable, really. It's awful. It's abominable. Yeah. You're getting someone at their weakest, lowest point and you're saying to them, you know, what do you think? Are you worth resuscitating or not? You know, it's 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 appalling. It's disgusting. I, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like so much else of what's happening to us these days in the last couple of years, it just tugs on the heartstrings, doesn't it? It's like you had a guest recently who spoke about um, the weaponization of compassion and, and you know, the weaponization of, of being a good person, essentially, you know, um, yeah. which is what all of this is about. And it just it, it really, you know, yeah. Yeah. Tell me this, you, you, did, did, did your aunt change her mind and did they remove the DNR from her? No, luckily she was fine and she came out of hospital. She came so out it never, anyway. You know, yeah. it never came to it. But, um, you know, that was really, that was quite, I couldn't believe it that she had actually, you know, I was like, what do you mean you've agreed? You can't, yeah. you know, we, we wouldn't want you to do that. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's that thing. But then. You know, and then obviously in the last couple of years as well, you know, you sort of speak to more and more people and maybe some of us have been speaking more a bit to spiritual people and stuff like that. And um, some of those have been saying, or I've, I've had conversations with people about it and they say, everybody says, they all agree, all the spiritual people and the religious people, um, that suicide is the absolute worst thing that you can do. And if you take it even further, some people believe, and I don't know where I stand on this, but some people believe that if you do commit suicide, you're going to be condemned to repeat the whole life again and again and again until you kind of make peace with it and come to terms with it and you know don't so so it's not in any kind of spiritual aspect considered to be a um the right thing to do no. although i really do understand you know what people are saying um but, yeah, yeah that's interesting in the context of your of your dad god rest him because 
I only know about motor neuron disease. What I've learned through lately is it. Um, I hope I've gotten the name right now. Is it Kevin Sinfield, rugby league player? Uh, or uh, Lou Gehrig. Yeah, Lou Gehrig, his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and it's such a terrible. It, it's such a terrible thing to have. It's such a terrible way. It can be such a terrible way to go out. So I'd understand somebody like your dad thinking, right, well, well b- before I get to that stage, I want to, you know, my family maybe to remember me as a, as a, an alert, as a, as a, as a healthy man. So I kind of get that. Um, but, mm-hmm. but, but then we talk about, you know, people with psychological disorders. And this has actually happened in Europe. We know this to be true. People have ended their own lives with the assistance of the mm-hmm. state, not because of anything that's physically wrong with them. Um, I don't know, um, Sasha. I, do, do you know what? The spiritual approach to suicide might be right, because I don't know. But I, I might get some mm-hmm. flack for saying this. I have sometimes looked at suicide, and I sometimes see it as, as a brave thing to do. I think it's brave. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah, it you must take some courage to do. You can't do yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I tell you what, I do believe. I believe that if you've got no, really, there are no naysayers, at least not today on the broadcast media today anyway. Most politicians, pretty much all politicians, yes, yes, we have to do something about it. We have to legislate. I think we can safely say there will be a draft legislation. It's probably going to happen here. What do, you, mm, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's, it's, there are, there are still some voices against it. And, and, you know, but it, it's always those in religious circles and generally conservative circles and so on. So it's not the, the fashionable opinion, you know, the, the fashionable opinion is that people um, should have ultimate say over themselves. And, and it's the power of the individual, isn't it? it kind yeah. of boils down to that thing. And just before um, I, just before I do move on, thanks, by the way, for reaching out. I really mm. appreciate this. If you, accompanied your dad to Dignitas mm. and thankfully it didn't happen and you got two years with him as mm. you said and you had good years with him he yeah. you would have been arrested wouldn't you on your return or there was a good chance he would have been because you would have been seen as an accomplice yeah but I wouldn't have cared about that I mean for me yeah. at the time it was paramount that that somebody who can't do something for themselves like free will yeah. to me anyway free will and then going back you know because this is the conflict isn't it back to the vaccines and all of that free will is paramount so whether you or I agree with it is is immaterial. If the person wants to do something, then it should be up to them. But then how do you facilitate that for them if they don't have the physical capacity to do it themselves? Yeah, I'm, I'm so, in total agreement with you. I, I, 100% in agreement. They, they shouldn't be arrested. You know, if somebody is determined mm-hmm. to do something and his wife or his daughter accompanies them, you know, to be with them, it's outrageous to arrest them on their return and somehow imply that they were involved in it. They were not involved in it. The decision was completely and utterly um, with the person who decided that this is the time but for me to go out. Yeah, you know that as a fact. How do you know that maybe well, see, the person accompanied them yeah. and try and persuade them? You know, you just don't know, do you? So, yeah, coercion. Yeah. yeah, and that's one one of my yeah. biggest concerns. And I thought the yeah. um, I thought the former Anglican bishop expressed it beautifully, Gavin Ashenden, far more beautifully than I could ever express it when, when he talked about, you know, where does it go? Does it go to, you know, p- people who are, whose lives are miserable because they are poor in an eternally worsening cost of living yeah. crisis? And they decide, well, yeah. I can't be a burden and this life is too much for me. So it's time for me to go. I mean, yeah, where does it end really? That's yeah. The and then this idea that some people are more valuable than others. So you're, you know, you don't have much money, so you're less worthy of being alive than someone who's 
you know bill gates or, or whatever what do you you know is that what we're saying so yeah it's yeah Sasha, thanks for that, for sharing that. I really appreciate it. It's a really, really important call that. Um, Merry Christmas to you if you're looking forward to it. You're looking forward to it the next Thank few you, days. Richie. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fun. Nice. Same to you, Richie. Thank you very much, yeah. and to all your listeners, and also thank you so much for everything you do. Not at all, and I'll be in touch, Sasha. Thank you very much. A great call, that. Thanks to Sasha. There, you're listening to Tuesday's Richie Allen show with me, Richie Allen. Uh, the time is coming up for 23 minutes past the hour. 23 minutes past the hour. Let me take a tune and then we'll we'll go uh, another way. Yeah. Right. I've not got a tune lined up. I'll say it for the last time. Flaky. No, no, I won't. I won't. I won't. I'll leave it. I'll leave it. I'll leave it. Listen, quick uh, plug for Thursday. Um, I've invited John Waters back to speak with me on Thursday, uh, to come on the programme even on Thursday. He will, he will be with me on uh, Thursday for an extended conversation. That will be the final Richie Allen show, the live Richie Allen show for uh, 2023, incidentally. It's time for... Take that. Why not? I'm just grabbing songs randomly now and um, operating one or two things at the same time. I'm doing one or two. I'm doing two or three things at the same time. That's what it is. All right. Back in a moment. Take that back for good on the Richie Allen Show. Lots and lots of messages on this issue. Uh, just to give you some context, why we're talking about it, the British television personality, Esther Ranson, gave an interview to BBC Radio 4. Um, she has late stage, or stage 4, lung cancer, and the outlook is very grim for Esther Ranson. Now, a number of you reached out to me to tell me that Esther Ranson behaved, not to put too fine a point on it, like a bit of a witch during the scamdemic. You know, saying that those who chose not to have jabs should be denied medical care and stuff like that. Look, judge not lest ye be judged. Some of you, some of you, and I'm not criticising you now, don't think this is criticism, it isn't. And I think it's a minority. But those of you who are the most condemning of people, the most judgmental, are also, in many cases, the ones who claim to be the most religious. You know, there's not an ounce of forgiveness in some of those of you who listen to the show. Now, again, I'm not criticising you. You have every right not to be forgiving. I'm not judging you. I'm not judging you. But some of you are really hard on people. You know, I've had people, I'm not listening to Dolly Parton ever again. You know, fuck Dolly Parton, Richie, and all of this, and Bruce Springsteen. No, walk a mile in somebody's shoes is what I say. You know, the conditioning as was brilliantly described by Mike Fairclough, the head teacher, earlier on, was very strong. And you've got to imagine that many of those pushing mask-wearing lockdowns and vaccines were doing so from a position of certainty that these were necessary measures. Like, I'm convinced that Dolly Parton probably believed we were in the middle of um, the end times with uh, COVID. And if you think that... Well, you're not exactly a fraud, are you? You know, it's different if you know it to be a load of old bollocks, thank you very much, but yet you go out there pushing vaccines. Some of you are really unforgiving, you know. Uh, Esther Ranson, fucker, you know. Well, no, no, no. Maybe Esther Ranson really believed that people who didn't take the COVID jabs were themselves then a, a danger to healthy people. And if she believed this because of the incessant propaganda, 
well then she's innocent, in my opinion. I'm a bit more forgiving, but I'm the first to confess that I changed over the years. I used not to be forgiving. I was incredibly judgmental at one point in my life. I really was. And I've learned not to be. Because nothing is black and white, you know. Esther Ranson is dying of lung cancer. And I respect her. I respect every human being. Not every human being. Of course I don't. But, um, you know, anybody going through that, it must be difficult, knowing that she's had a good innings, but her time might be coming to an end. So the context is, she's signed up to Dignitas and is, is, is saying that I want to know that it's there if I decide I can't take any more of this and I want to go out on my own terms. Now something interesting was discussed this morning. She said to the BBC, or I think Nick Robinson of the BBC, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll play it again. Because I'll play it again, the reason I'm going to play it again is because you've, I've got about two dozen messages on this from you and some of them are incredibly interesting, right? They're all important, but some of them are really interesting. So here's what Esther Ranson told the BBC today. I have joined Dignitas. I have, um, in my brain, thought, well, if the next scan says nothing's working, I might buzz off to Zurich. But, you know, it, it puts my family and friends in a difficult position because they would want to go with me. And that means that the police might prosecute them. So we've got to do something. At the moment, it's not really working, is it? Is it your view, Esther, that you might actually do it? Or is it just the comfort of knowing you could? That's a really good question by Nick Robinson. We don't say that too often. He was the subject of stupid question, wasn't he, the other day? But that's a good question. Because somebody else said today, somebody from the Netherlands, that... Just knowing it's there is often enough for people and then they don't go ahead with it. But knowing it's there as an option is things become a bit too difficult. What did Ranson say? Well, I think it's both, isn't it? When, they, when you look at countries and states where they've brought in limited circumstances under which assisted dying is possible... Um, they say an awful lot of people never use it. Because yeah, right. Okay, an awful lot of people never use it. Esther Ranson there. Let me play you the Anglican bishop, or the former Anglican bishop, because he makes a powerful case against it, the Christian. The problem is it's absolutely fine for Esther Ranson and for uh, Diana Rigg and, uh, and other wealthy, independent people to make these moral decisions for themselves. The difficulty is when we legislate it for the whole of society, because... Uh, at that point, the poor then find themselves a, a burden on the state with too few resources. And the pressure to accept the early termination of their life will grow too... Amazing. The poor could see themselves as a burden on, the, on, on a state with too few resources. And then a pressure comes on to accept termination. This is the former Anglican bishop speaking to GB News. This is amazing stuff, really. He, 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 could, he could envisage such a law going so far as leading to the early ending, or to, 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 to the poor ending their lives out of hopelessness and out of, uh, uh, out of guilt. Out of guilt. Imagine that. Imagine a dystopian future where euthanasia is an option and the poor are ultimately... Now, he doesn't say this. I'm, 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 I'm attributing to him something he hasn't said. But where you could be guilted into because you're useless 
You know, not not a 90-year-old person. And by the way, nobody should be guilt-tripped when they're 90. You know, 90-year-old people are the most valuable people we have on planet Earth because they've got all the news. They've had the life experience. They've seen it all. They've done it all. They've lived. They've loved. They've lost. They've won. They've travelled. They've experienced everything. It's It's amazing, you know, that resource that we don't use, that we don't tap into are seniors. I, I'm going to sound like a virtue-signalling bastard, but I'm not. I have a friend, and so does uh, the future missus. She's a very good friend. She's become a very close friend. And she's in her early 80s. Her name is Margaret. And she's lovely. And I got to know Margaret through walking our dogs. And then, um, as Margaret's mobility has become a little bit of an issue in recent years, we would um, come and take her senior dog Max who's sadly no longer with us and we would take Max out and then we would go back and have a chat with Margaret, have a cup of tea um, have a slice of cake, have a chat. She's an amazing woman and her stories and her knowledge is invaluable. She's wonderful. In fact I'll be going to see her I think on Friday morning with her Christmas present where we'll have a couple of hours of a chin wag and I will learn an incredible amount of stuff from her. She's brilliant, right. So you wouldn't want to be given people over a certain age or any age, this idea that you're a burden, that you've had your time, blah, blah, blah. But he takes it a step further, the bishop, and he says, imagine a society where poor people are guilted into it. Have a listen to this again. This former bishop, his name is Gavin Ashenden. I've sent him a message. I've invited him on the programme. Holy society, because uh, at that point, the poor then find themselves a burden on the state with too few resources. And the pressure to accept the early termination of their life will grow too great. It, it's the slippery slope argument. And I'm but, but, particularly when but, it comes to economics, um, but, that it almost always happens. But if they were to write into the legislation that it could only apply once someone has been given a, a, a terminal illness that, that their life has got no more than six months, doesn't that change things, particularly if then two doctors certified that the patient was of sound mind mentally? Well, yes, of course, that's a good argument. But the trouble is that's not how things work in our culture. I mean, if you look, for example, at the abortion debate, where there were supposed to be very powerful safeguards written in, they've simply been eroded over time under pressure. And, and I've no doubt at all that uh, the, any safeguards we wrote in for euthanasia once we started the process, will also be eroded. And it simply means that as people get old, even if, this, even if the state does nothing, they'll look at themselves and think, I'm taking away resources from my children and grandchildren. I better pop off. or I, I, the, the pressure, I think, will become enormous. And I think this is one of those things as a matter of social policy, where uh, issues of economics and social justice and, and our psychology all mean that it's too fragile to, to legislate in that kind of way. Brilliant, brilliant put, absolutely brilliantly put he said you'll put safeguards in of course you will, but those will be eroded over time and you can factor in this existential crisis which isn't a real crisis, climate change you could even introduce this to the discussion, imagine if you convince enough old people that um, you know, the we need to keep the planet we're going above the 1.5 degree Celsius threshold and that means that's catastrophic for the future of the planet and for the future of the children of planet Earth in 2023. And if you push that hard, if you push that harder and harder and harder, this notion that our existence, human beings, our existence and how we go about our day-to-day -day lives is in fact killing the planet and is reducing 
the chances of survival of the children of today. If you bang that into the heads of people over a certain age time and time and time again, right, and at the same time you legalise euthanasia, and at the same time those safeguards that the former Anglican bishop has described become eroded, the safeguards where you're, you know, you're supposed to determine to the nth degree to the possibility, you, you, you scrutinise the decision to make sure that the senior person is not being coerced. You see what I'm getting at there? So that's the context upon which I asked the question earlier on about euthanasia. So let me read some of your messages. Johnny says, Esther Ransom is great friends with Savile too. Yes, I've heard that said, no doubt about that. Gabriel says, isn't forgiveness triggered by acceptance and admittance? that what was done or said was wrong. Has Miss Ranson apologised? Uh, Esther Ranson, I don't know, Gabriel. Are you a Christian man? I, I don't ask that sarcastically. I ask that seriously. Because if you're a Christian man, doesn't judgment ultimately reside with the Creator? Doesn't God get to sort out Esther Ranson and Dolly Parton and, and determine whether or not they were shills, liars, whether or not they defrauded the public? Or, or, or whether they were themselves the victims of unbelievable propaganda. You know, I don't believe Esther Ranson owes me an apology because she said that I should be denied treatment even if I've had a heart attack. If indeed this is what Esther Ranson said. If she said it, it's an appalling thing to say. You didn't have a jab? Well, you shouldn't be treated if you have heart failure. Fuck off, Esther, is what I would say. I wouldn't melt down. I wouldn't want her cancelled. I would say grow up, give over, you know. I determine what I put in my body. I don't trust those jabs. That's my right. And by not trusting some experimental medication, I'm not signing a contract that says I don't get treated for a heart attack or a broken leg, love. But I don't judge Ranson because I don't know what is in her heart, what she did and didn't know. If she knew that COVID was nothing really, and if she knew that the jabs were maybe dangerous, well then she's a horrible old bastard, isn't she? But even then, let God sort her out. Judge not lest ye be judged. I'm not a religious man, but I do live my life by, 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 by fairly simple, by a few simple rules. One of them, don't do to others what you wouldn't have done to you, number one. And number two, don't judge people until you've lived their life or their lives, until you've walked in their shoes. Don't judge them. Because you don't know what's going on in people's minds. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors. You know, he's an awful bastard, him, isn't he? He's always in bad mood, him. He's not got a good word to say about anybody. What a prick, right? But you haven't a clue what's going on in this guy's life. Most of the time, you just don't know. So you judge not, lest ye be judged. I've got the King James Bible here on the desk at BBG Towers, given to me, beautifully embossed, leather-bound, by Jean-Anne Crowley, herself a Christian, trying to save my soul. There's no saving this soul, it's black. <laughs> we were told this in school. You, you talk about propaganda. I went to St. Saviour's National School. You know what the priest told us? And I remember this vividly. The priest said, whenever you commit this sin, it leaves a black mark on your soul. A little black mark, like an X. Literally. Because I was a curious child. I really was, and I would say... Do you mean that literally or figuratively? No, I swear I never said that. But I said, really? An actual black mark? Yes, yes. And you'll go to hell. 
unless you cleanse your soul by going to confession and making up sins. Because if you went to confession, Catholics, you go to confession. And as a seven-year-old, you couldn't possibly have done anything wrong, really. Apart from, I don't know. I don't know. Took something from the fridge and then lied about it. Or whatever. But um, anyway. Uh, Andy says, people were euthanized with the Liverpool Care Pathway. Richie, you need to check this out. Andy, you must be a recent convert to the Richie Allen Show, pal. I've been doing shows like this for many a year now. And I had many a discussion about the Liverpool Care Pathway, my friend. But thank you for reminding us. Yes, that's what it's all about. Easing people out. People who do not need to be eased out. She's only come in for a hip replacement. Right? Sasha's aunt. I see you're here to have a hip replacement. I am indeed. Thank you. Um, Listen, um, I've got a form here for you to sign if you want to. Um, Would you like us not to resuscitate you if anything goes wrong? What? I'm here for a hip replacement, love. Ian says, that religious leader, Gavin, he's only saying this because of his Christian beliefs, nothing else. Well, he sounded pretty sincere to me, Ian, but maybe. Philomena says, Richie, it would be interesting to know if these healthy, depressed youngsters would have a person with a pot of gold waiting for their organs if they decided to end their sad lives. I've seen this done uh, in other countries, says Philomena. That's an interesting take on it. Hi to Gunter, who says, I appreciate your call for more tolerance. A good man, says Gunter. Well, we, we must be tolerant with people. I like to think I'm pretty tolerant when it comes to people with opposing points of view. But it doesn't matter how tolerant I am. Yeah, I still get hammered sometimes with people sending me emails for not agreeing with certain points of view. It's not enough for people for you to listen to another point of view. You must agree with it or you're some sort of shill or or Freemason, or whatever it is these days. Julia says, Richie, thank you, Julia, as someone in severe pain and struggling constantly uh, to get treatment, I am pro-assisted suicide. And having worked in care homes, I would prefer to go that route than go into a home. Saying that I also have extreme, saying that, she says, I also have extreme reservations due to the coercion aspect and the loosening of rules in Canada and the Netherlands, something I find very sinister. It's a really balanced argument, Julia. Severe pain. Have you tried everything? Have you gone the natural route? Have you tried the acupuncture? Have you tried the CBD oil, Julia? Have you tried energy healing? And if you have, let us know and how you got on. Thanks for the message. Um, and um, for you sharing that with us, I, I do genuinely appreciate it. Sam says, going inwards saved me. Inner standing of yourself and this holographic realisation we find ourselves in. Singularity to duality to our third realisation, all set on love. The one finding the two via geometry. He says, Vesica Pisces, showing the first portal leading to the flower of life. Great to be here with you, says Sam. Sam, I haven't a fucking clue what any of that means, but it sounds interesting. That's all I'm going to say. And I mock thee not, by the way, just in case you think I'm mocking it. I'm not. Reach out to me via richieallen.co.uk. There is an app for the programme. Download it, and you can leave a message there. Uh, good evening to Jacob, who says, um, 
Esther Ranson is immortalised upon the Great Wall of Sea Nuts. But he doesn't say Sea Nuts. A few places behind the number one Sea Nut, uh, Dr. Asim Malhotra. And then you've sent me a link to somebody. You sent me a link to somebody. I don't know who that is, but thank you. Anyway, hi to Frank, who says Liverpool care pathway was only for Man United fans, <laughs> says Frank. Sadly, it wasn't, Frank. Kay says if Esther Ranson's idea of denying treatment to the unvaccinated had gained traction in the hysterical media, as many ideas did, then my husband would not be sitting next to me today. There was a lot of hysteria around. Remember, I remember it well. So at the very end of 2020, the very end, in fact, just before Christmas 2020, the first COVID jab was stuck in the arm of, of a lady. She was a senior lady. There's a big deal made about it. I'm surprised I can't remember the woman's name. The big deal made about it. Matt Hancock went on Good Morning Britain and pretended to cry because he was overcome by the achievement. He was overcome with emotion at the, at the, 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 the brevity, the gravity of the achievement getting the jab into people, getting the jabs in. Remember, Hancock pretended to cry. He's one of the greatest scumbags that ever lived, Matt Hancock, no doubt about that. But never forget one thing. Hancock wasn't the architect of this. Hancock was just a delivery boy who takes answers, excuse me, who takes orders from people who take orders, from people who take orders. He's very far down the food trough is Hancock. But he's an insufferable bastard. There's no two ways about that. You know, I remember it. So they rolled these things out and then the hysteria began. World-class mega-wankers. Mega-wankers. Like James O'Brien saying that he agreed with people being denied jobs, being fired if they refused to take the jobs. All of this hysteria. Again, some of the people indulging in the hysteria in the media, we could give them a pass because, because they meant it. They thought we were in the midst of Armageddon and the jabs were the white horse or the white knight on the steed here's the jabs to deliver us from this terrible scourge this pandemic so some people believed it and those people forgive them I believe that that, that Osama bin Laden in a in a James Bond villain type cave in the Tora Bora mountains pulled off 9-11 and I told anybody who would listen during my mainstream radio days, as that Osama bin Laden did that. Did that make me a sea nut? Well, it didn't because I didn't know any better. Now, if I had known any better, if I had known that 9-11 was a PSYOP, a false flag operation carried out by intelligence agencies in order to change the minds of the public and get them to support criminal, genocidal wars in the Middle East. If I'd have known that, and then I'd gone on air and said, yeah, Osama bin Laden perpetrated 9-11, well, I would be a bastard then. But I didn't know. Not for a couple of years in any case. We don't know who knew what and when. Luke says we already have euthanasia in this country. It's called end-of-life care. Thank you, Luke. That echoes some of the other messages here. Matt is in South Wales. Hi, Matt. And Donna. He says, with regards to DNRs on people's records when they've been in hospital, our mum spent most of this year in hospital. 
And to cut a long story short, myself and my sister were called over to the hospital in the middle of the night. This is six months ago, says Matt. They thought she was on her way out. Now, the doctor on the ward at the time approached us and said, there is no DNR on your mother's records. We said, well, no, there isn't. The doctor then went on to say that the decision was down to the doctor anyway. And if she thought it was in the patient's best interest, then they wouldn't attempt to resuscitate her. Now, we said, no, we would want her to be resuscitated. But the doctor did explain that to resuscitate somebody could result in chest compressions and as mum was so frail it would break her ribs and put her in more pain and distress. When, uh, when this was explained we did agree to it because mum was very very ill and had multiple health issues. But the doctor said the decision is out of our hands anyway. Now the way the doctor was telling it, the story, um, as it was, um, as it, as it happened, Mum did recover and came home from hospital nearly two months later. Uh, she's not great now, but she's hanging on in there in her own home, which was her ultimate wish to die at home. Thank you, Matt and Donna. Yeah, is that true then? So they ask you, or they ask the family sometimes. Shall we put a do not resuscitate notice on your loved one? And you and you say no, no, don't do that. We would wish that you resuscitate her. So they're asking you, but it's only a token thing. Is that in reality the doctor gets to decide anyway? Is that true? We'll have to look into this. I'm learning more and more. I didn't know this. We'll have to look into it. Yeah. Hi to Azza. Hi Azza. Matt Hancock was pretending to cry about one of his relatives, who it turned out he hardly knew. James says the first jab went to someone called William Shakespeare. Is that right? I remember the first one in England went to a woman whose name I can't remember. It was covered live, the moment, the monumental moment when she received the jab. Uh, Julia came back to say, yes, I've tried acupuncture. This is Julia who deals with chronic pain. I've tried CBD, some supplements, Reiki. Some of it works a bit, others not at all. I do swear by chiropractic treatment, says Julia, and I have it monthly. Wouldn't be able to work without it. She says, I have four illnesses known to be agonising, often listed in the top 20 most painful illnesses to, to have. To the extent one of them is known as the suicide disease. Julie, that's terrible. I don't know how you cope with it. And well done for battling through it or trying to battle through it. Because I wouldn't be the best um, when it comes to pain. Not that sort of pain, not that I've experienced it, you know. Yeah, so the time now is coming up to um, seven minutes to the top of the hour. This is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. Thank you for all of those messages. Thank you for those messages, yeah. Here's the Pogues. Go on, I'll give myself a break because um, I'm flaking out. I said I wouldn't say it again. But I am flaking out. Listen, that was a particularly stupid time to take a track because I'm uh, right up on the end of the programme, but I'm absolutely knackered. It's one of those things. I won't whinge about it because you know my situation with the insomnia and everything. I'm absolutely knackered. I'm looking forward to the break. We've got two shows to go tomorrow and Thursday. Uh, John Waters will be with me Thursday. You don't want to miss that. Just before we wrap it up today, uh, thank you to Peter, uh, who says, Richie, Maureen Keenan, 
living in Coventry, but originally from Ireland, was the first person to receive the convict jab, but William Shakespeare was the first man to receive it. You wonder about that. Uh, Peter's right, by the way. You wonder about choosing a bloke with the name William Shakespeare. They like to mess around, don't they? Hi to Cookie. Hi, Cookie, in Liverpool. She says, my friend has recently tried the Alexander Method. She's very happy with the results. Thank you so much for that. Listen, that's it for today. I uh, really, really enjoyed uh, speaking with Mike Fairclough, the head teacher in the first hour of the programme. Thanks to him. And thanks so much to Sasha for coming on and sharing her own personal story about her dad who had motor neurons disease and his intention at the time to go to Dignitas in Switzerland, which he ended up, ended up not doing. So it's a really interesting, really important story. Thank you, Sasha, for that. We'll talk again tomorrow. Before we talk tomorrow, though, the Papers podcast will be online tomorrow morning, and that will be online uh, just before 8 a.m. The Papers podcast, it's not live. It's a thing that happens online. All righty, until tomorrow then, from your BBG, enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Bye now. Bye.